are traveling through the book of Galatians together, and we have gotten to the point where Paul begins to go towards application. Before we get there, to understand really the application of it, you have to understand what Paul talked about first. And Paul, as he's going through the book of Galatians, is essentially nutshelling these two different ideas. One is how we would describe kind of the Old Testament as the law, and as uh, many of us understand it today, we don't think in terms of law, we think in terms of religiousness. That is to say, the old way or the religious way to relate to God, as Paul would nutshell it, is essentially that we would include a belief in Jesus and a modification of behavior. We would believe in Jesus and the modification of of behavior. And the reason we would do that is because we would think that if we believe right and behave right, we are now acceptable to God. And that's not terribly different for many of us. For many of us, that's in fact how we were raised, that you had a belief in God, you had a belief in Jesus, and you would behave right, and that behavior was a little bit dictated by who you were, who you were around, perhaps the faith or the religious upbringing that you were raised in. But Paul would come on the scene and say something totally different. In fact, the thing that he would say was almost difficult for them to hear because of the fact that it was, one, so different, and two, had implications that were very difficult to wrestle with. And here's what Paul would say. The old way of belief plus behavior, belief plus behavior, belief plus behavior is now gone. All it is is belief. All it is is faith in Jesus. To which they would say, whoa, 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 Paul. There is so much in the Bible about what to do and what not to do. There's so much in the scriptures about what we should do and shouldn't do. And what's interesting for you and what's interesting for me is what we should do and what we shouldn't do is determined by who we were raised by, by the the surroundings that we were raised in. And here's what I mean by that. For many of you, uh, if you were raised perhaps in in a, uh, let's say, a Catholic background, you were taught that as as you sinned, as you messed up, you go to God to confess. Now, for those of you raised in the Baptist background, you kind of sat around and said, well, why are you confessing to God? You know, why, why, why are you going to this priest and you go to this confessional and you say all this stuff? Like, man, you can just kind of talk to God directly. But then all the, the people from the Catholic faith would talk to the Baptist folks and say, wait, so you guys don't drink? And they'd say, no, that's the devil's juice, you know. Like, ever? No, no. Well, didn't, you know, Paul tell Timothy, Timothy, have a little wine for your stomach? Yeah, but that wasn't like wine, wine. That was like, you know, liqueur, you know, or... Didn't Jesus turn water into wine? And say, yeah, but that's not like our wine. That was like their wine. So it's like, okay, so don't get drunk on much grape juice was Paul's point, okay? It was wine. It was alcoholic. Maybe it wasn't, you know, it was Mike's hard lemonade, not Jaeger bombs, but it was wine. Nonetheless, for some of us, we were raised in churches where you were from a, a little bit of a different slant in churches. It was almost irreverent. In fact, not almost. It was irreverent if people clapped. That was the church I was raised in. Or it was irreverent if people used instruments. We were all raised with different moral prioritizations that were kind of influenced by that. Or perhaps you were raised out of a church environment and your understanding of God's desire or God's will was just from what you heard. So anybody who had a different lifestyle than what perhaps the prototypical Christian lifestyle was like was a sinner. Especially when you're younger, you have kind of the big three sins. You don't drink, you don't cuss, you don't smoke. Some smoking's legal now, but you know, you still don't do that because that's, you know, that's, that's against God's law. 
And we were raised to think and we were raised to believe that in some way, shape, and form, belief plus behavior. And Paul steps on the scene and says, not anymore. There is a new way to enter into God. There is a new way to find yourself acceptable to God, for me to find myself acceptable to God. And the way that we find ourselves acceptable to God is no longer to be shackled with the constraints of moralism. It's no longer to be shackled with the constraints of I have to do this, I have to do that, and if I don't do this, or if I don't do that, if I don't go to those places, if I don't attend frequently enough, then God's not going to be happy with me. And if I die, then who knows where I'm going to go? Because as long as our salvation is based off of our action, then our salvation is at best subjective to what we find moral. Now, Paul would come and says, not anymore. It's about faith. It's about faith. It's about faith. But to be honest, we have all struggled with this. In fact, I remember vividly a conversation I had with someone who is a Christian who spent some time as they walked away from the faith and as they were reexamining their faith kind of as an adult, they said this question, do you think that we take it too seriously? I mean, there's so many laws, there's so many rules, there's so many you oughts, there's so many you ought nots, there's so many you have tos, there's so many you shouldn'ts. Do you think that we take this too seriously? Do you think there's too many morals? And for, for some of us, again, we can feel like religion is this enslavement. We can feel trapped. We can feel confined to the morality of the scriptures. We can feel trapped and we can feel confined to the moralism that we see when we project into Christianity. And sometimes for when we read the scriptures themselves. But here was Paul's point. Here was Paul's point. You ought to feel free as a believer in Jesus. As your faith takes root, as your belief in Jesus takes root, here's what you ought to understand. That you can't earn your way into God's good graces. You can't, you know, behave, 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 attend, 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 say no, say no, say no, say yes, say yes, say yes. Enough time to earn your way into God's good graces. You can't, I can't, none of us can because all of us fundamentally share a problem called sin. And we all have done it and it alienates us from God. And as much good as I put into this, I can't be perfect. And I was never supposed to be. As I walk into faith, put my faith, my hope, and my trust in the fact that God saw that and supernaturally intervened by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. And on the cross, he hung, bore the sin and the shame and the guilt of the entire world. And when Jesus died, he was the substitution for the death, for the judgment, for the condemnation that I should have faced. So Paul says, when you get that, you shouldn't feel guilty, you shouldn't feel condemned, you shouldn't feel captured, you shouldn't feel enslaved, you shouldn't feel shackled. You should feel free. So as we kick off in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, this is Paul's primary thought process towards the Galatians. This is kind of the, the, the buildup of the first four chapters in his declaration in chapter 5, verse 1. If you've got a Bible, you can... Flip open to there. If not, we'll have it on the screen. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says this. He says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. In other words, the reason, this might seem you know, silly and repetitive. The reason that Jesus has set you free is so that you would be free. 
The reason that Jesus would set you free is that you would be free. Now, most of us understand that conceptually, but deny that emotionally. Most of us understand that conceptually. I am free from sin. I am free from power. I am free from death. But I still feel enslaved to the sin that exists in my life. And Paul says, stop, stop. The reason that Christ died on the cross was to set you free. And so don't, in that freedom, return back to feeling enslaved. In fact, don't return back to being enslaved by what you were once Enslaved to. He says, in fact, the next, very next part, he says, so stand firm then. Now, I love that because Paul basically is saying, hey, and you're going to have to stand firm. There's going to be some things that try to detract you from your freedom. You're going to have to understand this, know this, but I want you to stand firm. And I do not want you to, to submit yourselves again to the yoke of slavery. Now, in the real world or in the you know, movie world, this is so obvious, right? Martin Luther King stood up on the monument in Washington, D.C., the you know, Abraham Lincoln Monument, and said, I have a dream, and gave this extraordinary speech. And though there had been this initial liberation, there came back a lot, of, a lot of versions of racism and slavery, and it just kind of was a little bit more complex and systematized. And he says, I have a dream. And I love how he ends this. Because as he finishes, he says, he starts saying, let freedom ring from this place to that place. Let freedom ring from this place to that place. Let freedom ring. And then we will all together with one voice sing in the words of the great Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I am free at last. And you think of any sense of real slavery that has, ex- that has existed or continues to exist in the world. You think of, if, you, if you're familiar with South Africa, the apartheid that was, that was faced by Nelson Mandela and a whole host of other people, as he went to jail for decades of his life, in jail, fighting for freedom, enslaved to a system that would oppress him. For him to get out of jail, then become president. Can you imagine Dr. King, can you imagine Nelson Mandela walking back into slavery? (laughs) No. That would be the most outrageous thing. But Paul says, you got to be careful. Because spirituality is not as obvious, because it's not as clear, when you're walking back into this, if you don't stand firm and pay attention, you can easily walk back in to this slavery that you once were enslaved to. The law, the moralism that you were once enslaved to. He says, so don't you know, go back to this, this system. Continues. Verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, pause. If you're here and you're, you know, kind of new to this whole thing, and you're thinking, man, that just took a left turn I didn't expect him to bring up in church this morning. Um, Paul is not at all against circumcision. He's not against the process of circumcision. He's not against, you know, you know people who are circumcised. He's not against you if you are. In fact, if, raise your hand if, just kidding. <laughs> just want to let that linger out for a little bit. See if somebody's like, <laughs> Heart starts beating a little bit. Like a sinner in church, I tell you. <laughs> just kidding. But Paul's not against this. He, now, now, now here's, here's, here's what Paul's saying. Here's what Paul's saying. 
Circumcision for them um, was the ideal, it was kind of the, the hinge point for what they viewed as their old way. It was what they viewed as the, the, kind of the gateway to what would be all of the old way of life entering into morality. It was, as Paul goes through the book of Galatians, there's two main things that he talks about. One is he talks about observing religious feasts and festivals and special days. And the other one, he talks about circumcision. So, so Paul says, hey, 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 if you go back into this deal, if you go back into this deal, if you go back, not that you can't or you can't on the third day, you know, parents, and you're born in TMH or Birth Cottage or, you know, wherever you want to, you know, as you go back into this, you know, it's not about the circumcision, but as you place your trust back in your ability to believe and behave, believe and behave, believe and behave, with an emphasis on the behave part, then let me tell you, Christ is of no advantage to you. In other words, the whole reason Christ came was because we were to declare and God saw that we were incapable So to take that capability back into our hands functionally denies the relevance or the necessity of Jesus. He says, so if you've gone out of that, don't walk back into it. Or Christ is going to be of no value to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. For you, and that's, this, is how, this is how seriously he takes it, have fallen away from grace. Now, here's what's a little bit difficult about this. There's something inside of us, in fact, the longer that you've been a religious person, there's something inside of us that wants to push back against what Paul's saying. It says, Paul, I understand, I see, you know, I, I get it, but... I was raised that you always take your hat off when you pray. When I don't take my hat off when I pray, I feel like God's about to. I was raised to think that you always bow your head and close your eyes. Let me tell you one of the things that's weird for me. I was raised with a dad who always bowed his head but never closed his eyes. He's always looking around like, Dad, why don't you close your eyes? He's just like, why would I? Because like, I, that's what we do. We pray. You know, you close your eyes. Now, he says, now... It, it, If you're going to go back to this idea that you have to prove yourself to God, let me me tell you, you have denied the necessity for Christ and in doing so fallen away from grace. When you choose this part, even if it's just a little part, we're going to get to that in in, in a minute here, even just a little part, then you deny the necessity or the sufficiency of Jesus. Now there's a new way, and it's good news this new way. But you can't have a mixing of the new way and the old way. Because that's what they tried to do. It wasn't that they had to obey necessarily every law they thought. They just thought, here's a couple of key laws that if you are going to be a believer and you are going to be in God's good graces, then you have to abide by. Paul says, so this is the new way, verse 5. This is the implications of the new way. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This mean, there's, there's this eager awaiting for this hope of our, of our sanctification, our justification when we die. There's an there's the eager awaiting of why we're here on planet Earth that we live by faith. And he says a statement that for them was so offensive in this next verse. He's going to say a statement that for them was so difficult to wrestle with. And we're being honest, it is so difficult for us to wrestle with because we have deeply ingrained inside of us this idea of religiousness, this idea of behave and believe, behave and believe, believe and behave back and forth. And as he says this, says something so, again, so offensive, this would have been so difficult for the readers to read because their entire existence had been a sense 
of morality. So this is what he says next. He says, For in Christ Jesus, in other words, when you're in Christ, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. He says, for, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. Now, again, this was difficult for them to hear because this is essentially like Paul saying to us, hey, um, in Jesus, whether you um, spend time in the word or don't spend time in the word, this is, you know, that, that, that's irrelevant to your standing with God. Um, for you in Jesus, whether you... Um, had a, had a semester or you had a season of life, you had a business trip where you just did something horrible and you can't believe you did it and your family can't believe you did it. Perhaps it's torn the fabric apart of your family. He says, whether you did that or didn't do that does not matter. Whether you drink, whether you don't drink, doesn't matter. Whether you sleep around, don't sleep around, doesn't matter. Which we would say, whoa, 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 whoa. Paul, I don't think you know how religiousness works. Like, we got to have some sense of good folks, you know, good God, good folks, go to a good heaven. That's kind of how it works. Because for us, we love to have a metric to substantiate our standing with God. I don't know if you ever noticed that. We love to have a metric to substantiate our standing with God because we have metrics for almost everything else in life that determines how we're doing. You got a job, hopefully at some point you get a, you know, a, a, an evaluation from your boss and his bosses. Sometimes if you get an evaluation of your employee, it can feel a little bit critical. But we live in a day and age where there is more job satisfaction that's determined by direct feedback than it is by compensation. It's the craziest thing. You know why? Because everything else in life up to this point has been determined by a metric to tell you how you're doing. You can tell how you're doing in terms of your popularity by how many likes you got on Instagram, right, or how many comments that you got. In fact, some of you guys do this weird thing where you just go follow rando people to try to get them to follow you back so you can feel better about yourself. And then you say, man, look at my metric, my followers, my likes. Oh, my gosh, I am just the coolest person in the world. You know, I posted on Facebook, and, and man, that one, you know, about me, of me I thought was a good picture, but apparently it wasn't a good picture because it only got 60 likes. That one got 120 likes. Holy cow, I am the most beautiful person on planet Earth. Look, and now, again, we don't, we don't necessarily think in these terms, but look at my metrics. Look at how I can benchmark and determine how I'm doing. Now, Paul does something in this next verse, in this next statement, that gives us a bit of a metric for us to help to understand how our faith impacts our life. In other words, he would say, this is how you know you're on the right track. Not behaviorism, 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 moralism, moralism, moralism. It doesn't matter if you drink, don't drink, and cuss, don't cuss, sleep around, don't sleep around, you know, fudge on your, you know, your, your stuff at work, don't fudge on your stuff at work, fudge your taxes, you know, financially, whatever. Because none of that matters. What matters is your faith expressing itself through love. You want to know the metric that will help to determine your level of faith in God it's not you constantly trying to do things to prove yourself to God and do things to prove yourself to God and over and over and over, God, I'm going to obey, I'm going to, be- to behave, I'm going to obey, I'm going to behave, and hopefully we'll be good right here. Paul says, once you realize that you have a good standing with God, not based on your behavior, but because of our lack of ability to behave, we are in God's good graces because of our faith in Jesus. Here's what's going to happen. You are all of a sudden going to feel secure in yourself. You all of a sudden are going to feel that you 
Regardless, in fact, you're going to embrace your insecurities. You're going to embrace your inabilities. And in doing that, you know what you're going to find? When you are loved in spite of who you are, you respond with a love back. Now, for some of you, this isn't going to necessarily connect, but, but for those of you who are married, you get this. Because the greatest thing that drives a love for your spouse is to know that you are fully loved in all your, in, in all your inadequacies and in all your idiosyncrasies and all of your flaws, that you are fully known and loved. You know what makes us not want to respond in love? When our spouses see our flaws and dislike, hate, Perhaps they build some type of resentment towards you. And you just feel this such a sense of resentment that you can't perform, you can't perform, you can't perform, you can't perform. What do you do? You just turn your back. You just turn your back. You just, whether it's you put up a, a, a wall in your heart, whether, you put, whether it's you put up a wall emotionally in your mind, when we feel like we are condemned for our insufficiencies, we put up walls and turn the other way. But when we realize that we are loved because of, in many ways, our insufficiencies, we can't help but feel so secure in that love that it drives a love back. And so this is what Paul says. As you realize that you are loved by God, as you place your faith in your inability, his extraordinary sufficiency, and you feel secure, not because of the fact that God just kind of saw you and doesn't really like you but decided to die for you, but he was so passionate, he sent his son into the world to die for you and for me, it will drive a love for other people. You want to know a metric? Let's talk about how well you love somebody else. Regardless if they believe what you believe or think what you think. Act like you act or don't act like you act. Look like you, dress like you, talk like you. Paul says, man, when you get this faith, let me tell you what transpires. Let me tell you what the cause and effect is. Let me tell you what the correlation and the causation is your faith drives a love for other people. He's going to finish this with, with some interesting words of how serious he is about it. He says, you were running so well. When I was with you, man, you guys got this. You understood this. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And he says this in an interesting word, verse number nine. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, a little bit easier translation. A little bit of yeast works its way, works its way through the entire dough. In other words, if you get a, a little bit of, of yeast, which is a you know, kind of single cell fungi, and you, science lesson, uh, and if you put this little bit into this really dense dough and you work it in, you work it in, you let it sit on the counter, let me, let me tell you what's going to happen. You even take a little bit of this and put it into it, it's going to change everything. He says, and that's the exact same way when you return to the law. Because as soon as you return to the law, as soon as you return to your level of behaviorism, what happens inevitably is that grace isn't free anymore. If at some point after the service, somebody, you know, when you came up to me and said, Ben, you know, man, I know your favorite restaurant, and, you know, it's Chick-fil-A, debatably, Zaxby's, you know, a little bit old school, but I, you know, I'm over 30 now, so I have to eat Chick-fil-A because it's perceived as healthier. Um, <laughs> sorry, derailment from the entire sermon. Started to think, I mean, I need to work out more. So, 
If after the service you would come up to me and say, you know, Ben, I know you're, you know, Chick-fil-A, you're a Christian, whatever. Um, Lucky Goat Midtown, you know, shout out to the Lucky Goat folks in here. Or Red Eye, because you're a Christian. Um, as, you know, so here is a $100 gift card to your favorite coffee shop, to your favorite restaurant. I want to give this to you. And I said, well, man, you, you know, don't need to do that. Um, let me give you, you know, $100, you know, let me, let, me give you, let me pay you back. Let me give you 100 bucks for it. He said, no, no, no. I said, well, okay, well, let me give you 50 bucks. Let me give you something for it. He said, no, no, no. What about 25 bucks? No, 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 All right, let, let me at least give you five bucks for this $100 gift card. I know that's ridiculous, but at least let me give you something for what you have done for me. And he said, okay, fine. I'll let you give me five bucks. You know what happened right there? That was no longer free. That's no longer a gift card. That's a really, really, really great discount card, okay? That's a, that's a Black Friday deal that we're not passing up, right? None of us, when we do that, when we enter into that transaction, it's no longer free, it's no longer a gift. That means in some way, shape, or form, we gave back and added value to because of what you have given to us. Now, what Paul is saying here is the same thing. When you try to put a little bit into it, and you try to put a little bit of behaviorism into it, when you try to say, as long as I read, then I'm acceptable to God. As long as I pray, then I'm acceptable to God. As long as I don't drink, then I'm acceptable to God. As long as I don't cheat on my wife, I'm acceptable to God. As long as I have a purity level, then I'm acceptable to God. As long as I go to confession, I'm acceptable to God. As long as I don't do X, Y, or Z, or do do A, B, C, then I am acceptable to God. Paul says, as soon as any of that enter the equation... You have just nullified the total need of Christ. Because if you can pay back a little bit, you can pay back the entire thing. And that is to devalue, to demean, and in every sense of the word, negate the reason of our necessity for Jesus. (laughs) So here's Paul's next statement as he starts to conclude. We'll conclude what we're going to talk about today at least. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But brothers, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish, now this is, this is, this is a funny kind of church thing that he does. He says something that, like, if you're a kid in here, just earmuffs for a second, okay? Because Paul just talked about love. Just talked about, okay, I want you to do what's loving. I want you to do what's loving. How you know your faith has manifested itself is by doing what's loving. So this is what he says next. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you, who who preach that false gospel, who preach that little bit of moralism and behaviorism, would emasculate themselves. In other words, hey, why they're just saying circumcision and, and, and cut a little bit off, I just wish they take the whole thing off. It's like, Paul, man, I, you know, I'm with you, but... Did you just forget that you talked about love about five verses ago? You know, you're telling people that, hey, I wish that you would just, you know, if you're, why you got the knife out, just, just go ahead, bud, man, just pull the trigger. No, here, here's why he says that. Because this was such a big deal. The implications of how you and I would understand salvation were at stake here. The implications of what was going on demanded Paul to have so direct a response that he could say this as a loving statement. And here's why I bring that up. Because for many of us, as we talk about love, as we talk about how our faith inspires us, so we talk about how our belief, our justification manifests itself in a love for other people, what many of us get to is this soft version of love. What many of us get to is this version of love that just says, smile and be nice. 
Paul was directly confrontational. What set off the entire book of Galatians in chapter 2 was Paul opposing Peter to his face. In other words, Paul going to Peter, who was the man at the time, and saying, Peter, we need to have some words because there's some stuff going on. Here's why I say that. For some of us, we do need to be more bending towards other people. We do need to let the faith, we do need to let the sanctification, we, need to, we do need to let the salvation that we have in Jesus, the love that we experience in our insufficiencies, just completely wash us away to the point where we don't have to be hypercritical of other people because if we're being honest, most of our hypercriticalness is born out of our own insecurities. And when you realize your insecurities don't matter, then you have nothing to be hypercritical about. But on the other side of that, some of you are so uncritical. By uncritical, I mean dishonest, disingenuous about things that you know is happening, you know is going on, you know need to be said, and you are so kind. You forgot to be loving. You're so nice. That your love is really a self-love because you don't want to put yourself out there. And your insecurity, again, dictates your level or your insufficiency in your love because you don't realize that you're loved whether this person cares about you or not, agrees with you or not, likes you or not. So Paul looks at him and says, in all the security I have, this is such a big deal. I wish if you tried to take a little bit of this, you would just go the whole way. Now, as we end all this, this whole thing, let me kind of wrap you up and give you some, some thoughts as, as takeaways. Number one is perhaps you walked in here this morning and you're brand new to Jesus, you're brand new to faith, you're brand new to Christianity. I want you to know that the hallmark of our faith is grace. The hallmark of our belief is a belief that we are insufficient. And in our insufficiency, God saw that And God provided a way for us to be reconciled and right with him. That it does not matter what you've done. It does not matter your past. It does not matter your present. In fact, it really doesn't even matter your future. It doesn't matter how much sinning that you've done. It doesn't matter what your mountain or your hill of of sin and how big it is. It doesn't matter what it's made of. The only thing that matters is your faith in Jesus, your belief in your insufficiency and his sufficiency that when he died on the cross, he died for my sins, and I believe that. And as I believe that, the love of God washes over me, and as that happens, I begin to love other people, and that's all that matters. Realizing the love of God, having faith in his sanctification and justification and salvation will fundamentally transform your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and turn you into somebody who is more holy than you ever thought you could be in your own power. If you're in here and you're a Christian, let me just ask you this. Have you stopped paying attention? Do you feel free in your relationship with Jesus? In your faith, in your relationship with God, do you feel a sense of freedom or have you wandered back to enslavement? Have you said, free at last, free at last at the moment of salvation, but then walked back onto the plantation? Have you said, free at last, free at last, free at last, and said, I am no longer shackled, and then walked back up and put your hands up to be shackled by the enslavement of the law 
of the moralism of having to prove yourself to God? Or do you have a love that's so deep that washes over your insecurities and inspires you to love people who are like you and who are nothing like you, who the world sees as lovable and the world who sees so totally unlovable? Because my guess is if you're in here and you're not a Christian, you're investigating this whole thing, this is probably why you're not a Christian. Because you saw Christians who didn't really have their faith inspire them to love, work itself out through love. You saw people who claimed to faith but were really insecure, and so they judged everybody else. Let's not be that church. A little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven leavens itself through the whole bread. A little bit of yeast works itself. So be on guard, be prepared, because we, as Christians, are free. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have. Thank you for the freedom that we have in you, Jesus. Knowing that it's not because of us that we're free. It's not because of our good works that we're free. It's not because we're such a moral group. It's not because we're such a holy group. It's because of the fact that you, our Savior, died for us to justify us, to pronounce us not simply forgiven, but innocent and free. And it's for that freedom, Jesus, that you set us free to no longer be enslaved. So I pray for each and every brother and sister that I have in here that believes and has their faith in you. You would help us to not be enslaved, to hold ourselves to the enslavement. But you would help us to understand the security that we have in you. That the faith that we have, the love that we experience because of our faith in you, would compel a love for other people. So help us to be on guard, knowing that even a little bit of this works its way through the whole batch. And I pray for anybody and everybody in here who perhaps is wrestling with the thought of you, Jesus, and the thought of Christianity and the thought of God, perhaps because of what they've experienced in the church, a group of people who proclaimed a faith, but because of their lack of morals, felt an insecurity and projected a condemnation and a judgment. Jesus, would you please help us? Would you please help them to see the truth that you are a loving God who does not expect perfection or anything close, but since your son to die for our imperfection, that as we place our faith, our hope, our trust and our belief in you, Jesus. You forgive us and pronounce us free. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.